Chapter Seven of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Seven, The Pauper Alien. Moses Ansell married mainly because all men are mortal. He knew he would die and he wanted an heir not to inherit anything but to say kaddish for him now kaddish is the most beautiful and wonderful morning prayer ever written rigidly excluding all references to death and grief it exhausts itself in supreme glorification of the eternal and in supplication for peace upon the house of Israel. But its significance has been gradually transformed. Human nature, driven away with a pitchfork, has avenged itself by regarding the prayer as a mass, not without purgatorial efficacy. And so the Jew is reluctant to die without leaving someone qualified to say Kaddish after him every day for a year, and then one day a year. That is one reason why sons are of such domestic importance. Moses had only a mother in the world when he married Gittel Silverstein, and he hoped to restore the balance of male relatives by this reckless measure. The result was six children, three girls and three Kaddashim. In Gittel Moses found a tireless helpmate. During the lifetime the family always lived in two rooms, for she had various ways of supplementing the household income. When in London she charred for her cousin Malka at a shilling a day. Likewise she sewed under-linen, and stitched slips of fur into caps, in the privacy of home and midnight. For all Mrs. Ansell's industry, the family had been a typical group of wandering Jews, straying from town to town in search of better things. The congregation they left—every town which could muster the minimum of ten men for worship boasted its kahila its community, invariably paid their fare to the next congregation, glad to get rid of them so cheaply, and the new Kahila jumped at the opportunity of gratifying their restless migratory instinct, and sent them to a newer. Thus were they tossed about on the battledores of philanthropy often reverting to their starting-point to the disgust of the charitable communities. Yet Moses always made loyal efforts to find work. His versatility was marvellous. There was nothing he could not do badly. He had been a glazier, a shamus, picture-frame manufacturer, chazan, peddler, shoemaker in all branches coat-seller, official executioner of fowls and cattle, Scheuchert, Hebrew teacher, fruiterer, circumciser, 
professional corpse-watcher, and now he was a tailor, out of work. Unquestionably Malka was right in considering Moses a schlemiel in comparison with many a fellow immigrant who brought indefatigable hand and subtle brain to the struggle for existence, and discarded the prop of charity as soon as he could, and sometimes earlier. It was as a hawker that he believed himself most gifted, and he never lost the conviction that if he could only get a fair start he had in him the makings of a millionaire. Yet there was scarcely anything cheap with which he had not tramped the country, so that when poor Benjamin, who profited by his mother's death to get into the orphan asylum, was asked to write a piece of composition on the methods of travelling, he excited the hilarity of the classroom by writing that there were numerous ways of travelling. You could travel with sponge, lemons, rhubarb, old clothes, jewellery, and so on, for a whole page of a copy-book. Benjamin was a brilliant boy, yet he never shook off some of the misleading associations engendered by the parental jargon, for Mrs. Ansell had diversified her corrupt German by streaks of incorrect English, being of a much more energetic and ambitious temperament than the conservative Moses, who dropped nearly all his burden of English into her grave. For Benjamin, to travel, meant to wander about selling goods, and when in his books he read of African travellers, he took it for granted that they were but exploiting the dark continent for small profits and quick returns. And who knows? Perhaps of the two species, it is the old Jewish peddlers who suffered the more and made the less profit on the average for the despised three-hatted scarecrow of Christian caricature, who shambled along snuffling old clow, had a strenuous inner life, which might possibly have vied in intensity, elevation, and even sense of humour with that of the best of the jeerers of the highway. To Moses travelling meant straying forlornly in strange towns and villages given over to the worship of an alien deity, and ever ready to avenge his crucifixion, in a land of whose tongue he knew scarcely more than the Saracen damsel married by legend to Abeket's father. It meant praying brazenly in crowded railway trains, winding the phylacteries sevenfold round his left arm and crowning his forehead with the huge leather bump of righteousness, to the bewilderment or irritation of unsympathetic fellow-passengers. It meant living chiefly on dry bread and drinking black tea out of his own cup, with meat and fish and all the good things of life utterly banned by the traditional law, even if he were flush. It meant carrying the red rag of an obnoxious personality through the land of bulls. It meant passing months away from wife and children, in a solitude only occasionally alleviated by a Sabbath 
spent in a synagogue town. It meant putting up at low public houses and common lodging-houses, where rowdy disciples of that Prince of Peace often sent him bleeding to bed, or shamelessly despoiled him of his merchandise, or bullied and blustered him out of his fair price, knowing he dared not resent. It meant being chaffed and jibed at in a language of which he could only understand that it was cruel, though certain trite facetae grew intelligible to him by repetition. Thus, once, when he had been interrogated as to the locality of Moses when the light went out, he replied in Yiddish that the light could not go out, for it stands in the verse that round the head of Moses our teacher, the great lawgiver, was a perpetual halo. An old German happened to be smoking at the bar of the public-house when the peddler gave his acute answer. He laughed heartily, slapped the Jew on the back, and translated the repartee to the convivial crew. For once intellect told, and the rough drinkers, with a pang of shame, vied with one another in pressing bitter beer upon the temperate Semite. But, as a rule, Moses Ansell drank the cup of affliction instead of hospitality, and bore his share to the full without the remotest intention of being heroic in the long agony of his race, doomed to be a byword and a mockery amongst the heathen. Assuredly, to die for a religion is easier than to live for it. Yet Moses never complained nor lost faith. To be spat upon was the very condition of existence of the modern Jew, deprived of Palestine and his temple, a footsore mendicant, buffeted and reviled, yet the dearer to the Lord God who had chosen him from the nations. Bullies might break Moses' head in this world, but in the next he would sit on a golden chair in paradise among the saints, and sing exegetical acrostics to all eternity. It was some dim perception of these things that made Esther forgive her father when the Ansells waited weeks and weeks for a postal order, and the landlords were threatening to bundle them out neck and crop, and her mother's hands were worn to the bone, slaving for her little ones. Things improved a little just before the mother died, for they had settled down in London, and Moses earned eighteen shillings a week as a machinist and presser, and no longer roamed the country. But the interval of happiness was brief. The grandmother, imported from Poland, did not take kindly to her son's wife, whom she found wanting in the minutiae of ceremonial piety and godless enough to wear her own hair. There had been, indeed, a note of scepticism, of defiance in Esther's mother, a hankering after the customs of the heathen, which her grandmother divined instinctively and resented for the sake of her son, and the post-mundane presence of her grandchildren. 
Mrs. Ansell's scepticism based itself upon the uncleanliness which was so generally next to godliness in the pious circles round them, and she had been heard to express contempt for the learned and venerable Israelite who, being accosted by an acquaintance when the shadows of Eve were beginning to usher in the Day of Atonement, exclaimed, "'For heaven's sake, don't stop me! I missed my bath last year!' Mrs. Ansell bathed her children from head to foot once a month, and even profanely washed them on the Sabbath, and had other strange, uncanny notions. She professed not to see the value of God, man, or beast, of the learned Rabbonim, who sat shaking themselves all day in the best medresh, and said they would be better occupied in supporting their families, a view which, though mere surface blasphemy on the part of the good woman, and primarily intended as a hint to Moses to study less and work longer, did not fail to excite lively passages of arms between the two women. But death ended these bickerings, and the booby, who had frequently reproached her son for bringing her into such an atheistic country, was left a drag the more upon the family, deprived at once of a mother and a breadwinner. Old Mrs. Ansell was unfit for anything save grumbling, and so the headship naturally devolved upon Esther, whom her mother's death left a woman getting on for eight. The commencement of her reign coincided with a sad bisection of territory. Shocking as it may be to better regulated minds, these seven people lived in one room. Moses and the two boys slept in one bed, and the grandmother and the three girls in another. Esther had to sleep with her head on a supplementary pillow at the foot of the bed, her thighs often aching from the kicks of her little sisters. But there can be much love in a little room. The room was not, however, so very little for it was of ungainly sprawling structure, pushing out an odd limb that might have been cut off with a curtain. The walls nodded fixedly at one another, so that the ceiling was only half the size of the floor. The furniture comprised but the commonest necessities. The attic of the Ansells was nearer heaven than most earthly dwelling-places for there were four tall flights of stairs to mount before you got to it. Number one, Royal Street, had been in its time one of the great mansions of the ghetto. Pillars of the synagogue had quaffed kosher wine in its spacious reception-rooms, and its corridors had echoed with the gossip of portly dancers in stiff brocades. It was stoutly built and its balusters were of carven oak. But now the threshold of the great street door, which was never closed, was encrusted with black mud, and a musty odour permanently clung to the wide staircase, and blent subtly with a faraway reminiscence 
of Mr. Belasco's festive turpentine. The Ansells had numerous housemates, for Number One Royal Street was a Jewish colony in itself, and the resident population was periodically swollen by the hands of the Belkoviches and by the B'nai Bris who came to worship at their synagogue on the ground floor. What with Sugarman, the Shadchan on the first floor, Mrs. Simmons and Dutch Debbie on the second, the Belkoviches on the third, and the Ansells and Gabriel Hanberg, the great scholar, on the fourth, the doorposts twinkled with mezuzahs, cases or cylinders containing sacred script, with the word Shaddai peering out of a little glass eye at the centre. Even Dutch Debbie, abandoned wretch as she was, had this protection against evil spirits, so it had come to be regarded, on her lintel, though she probably never touched the eye with her finger to kiss the place of contact after the manner of the faithful. Thus was Number One Royal Street close-packed with the stuff of human life, homespun and drab enough, but not altogether profitless may be to turn over and examine. So close-packed was it that there was scarce breathing space. It was only at immemorial intervals that our pauper alien made a pun. But one day he flashed upon the world the pregnant remark that England was well named. For to the Jew it was verily the Engerland. Uh, which in German signifies a country without elbow-room. Moses Ansell chuckled softly and beautifully when he emitted the remark which surprised all who knew him. But then it was the rejoicing of the law, and the Benebris had treated him to rum and currant-cake. He often thought of his witticism afterwards, and it always lighted his unwashed face with a happy smile. The recollection usually caught him while he was praying. End of chapter 7